Hey there, friends. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. Uh, I am so incredibly grateful to each and every one of you who listen to the podcast and pray for you on a regular basis, even if we've never met. And even if I don't know exactly who you are, there are people listening all over the world and all around the country. And and so I take some time to pray for the listeners and pray that God would use this podcast to build you up in your faith and help you follow Jesus. You know, my whole heart in doing this is is really to provide resources that are rooted in everyday life that can just help us understand the Bible, help us follow Jesus, help us read the Bible better. That's the whole goal, so that we can live as God's people in this world the way God called us to and intended us to. And so I pray for you and pray along those lines for each one of us to be faithful followers of Jesus and to really seek him first as we read the Bible. And so all of that's to say, I'm grateful for you. And thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We have been in a, a series where we're just kind of exploring not in any particular great organized way, but exploring some things connected to how we should understand and read the Old Testament law. And the reason for that is because I think most of us just have a hard time with it, for one. It's not always easy to read. You're reading along and you get to all the rules and the instructions for the priests and all these laws, some of which are odd or weird and So we're reading it, and it's just hard to understand. It could be a little bit boring. It could be really confusing. So that's part of it. Plus, we've heard, I think, some bad teaching on the subject where, you know, we hear things like, well, you know, the Old Testament is just a bunch of rules and rituals that they had to do in order to be saved, but they could never do it. And so that's why God said to send Jesus. We've already said, no, that's not the way it even worked. They were redeemed before they were given the law. Um, We've heard that that, you know, just some negative things about it. And yet the Apostle Paul says things like the law is holy and righteous and good, that the law is given as examples for us so that we can actually follow God now. Or Paul says, all scriptures is inspired by God and is useful, profitable for rebuking, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God might be adequate and equipped. And when he says all scripture there, he's talking specifically about the Old Testament. And so We have to accept the fact that the Old Testament is useful, profitable, valuable, and we have to not run it down and uh, say negative things about it and treat it poorly. At the same time, we have to make sure we understand it well and understand it wisely. And that's really the motivation behind this little series we're in. And so on this episode, what I want to do is I just want to really explore then What was the purpose of the law in its original setting, original context? What's its purpose? What was its goal? And how maybe can we benefit from it? All right. So we've worked through enough things about kind of almost preliminary things about what the law is and how it it was, you know, God's covenant with Israel, how it was given to them not as a means of being saved, but now that they are saved as God's redeemed people, how do you respond to God and how do you live as God's people faithfully and wholeheartedly? So it was given for people who were redeemed as a covenant to really help clarify the nature of their relationship with God. So we've talked about all of that. So in view of all of that, what really was the goal or purpose of the law? And how could we read it in a way that's beneficial to us today? All right, so that's what we want to take up 
here on this particular episode. And really, in view of that summary that I just gave, that the law was given to Israel after their redemption as uh, part of their covenant with God to be God's covenant people, that reminds us that the law, the way we should think of it, is sort of like a national charter for the nation of Israel. It's the founding documents of a people formed in uh, you know around 1500 BC in their time, their culture, their place. So we've got to really read the law that way. That I think that's that's a crucial key to us really understanding the law rightly and appropriately is we need to think of it as the founding documents of a new nation a new nation that had been called by God and redeemed by God, that was going to be given land by God. And so God now is forming this nation, and that means there's all sorts of laws, right? Like nations need laws to guide and to govern those that nation. And so that's what, that's really what the Old Testament law is. It's it's a, a national charter and the founding documents for a new nation. And this new nation is uh, a nation in covenant relationship with the one true God. Out of all the other nations around them, out of all the other gods of those nations around them, Yahweh is the one true God. He is the God who has redeemed this people and demonstrated his power. He is entering into a covenant relationship with them. And it's a covenant relationship that, I think I failed to mention this on last week's podcast, a covenant relationship modeled after the covenants of that time period where you would have, say, a king who is now in charge. You don't negotiate with him. He tells you, here's here's what it means to be my people. And God, as king, says, here's what it means to be my people. And then he gives them the, the law as really the founding laws of their nation in that time period. And the goal of that was, because these were God's redeemed people, the goal of that whole thing was for Israel to be unique and distinct among all the peoples of the world, among all the nations around them, so that they could display the wisdom and understanding of God himself, so that they could be a light to the nations. The key text that enunciates that for the nation of Israel and should form our understanding, really, of the purpose of the law is Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. And that passage, if you just pay attention to the flow of Exodus, comes really at the hinge point in Israel's history and Israel's experience of Yahweh and in the story of Exodus. The the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus are the Exodus account. They're the experience of God redeeming Israel and bringing them to himself and delivering them from their bondage in Egypt. And so the Exodus, chapters 1 through 18, chapters 20 and following— is really about the giving of the law and then the forming of the tabernacle that's going to be a key part of their religious experience and living out some of the religious components of the law. And here in Exodus 19 is the hinge point between the Exodus, redemption, and the covenant and the law uh, in chapters 20 and following. 
And so here at this point, at that hinge point, here's what God says. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. He says to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Redemption. How I brought you to myself. I made you my people. You've been redeemed. You've seen that. Now, verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Right? Like, you will be my people. You will be uniquely mine. You will be wed to me is almost what the language is getting at here. You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, right? So God's got a global perspective. The whole earth is mine. You're going to be my treasured possessions. In fact, verse six, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what Israel is supposed to be. And the law is given to help them know how to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When he says a holy nation, the basic idea of the word holy is distinct, separate, like unique, right? That's the idea. You're supposed to be different. That's what that word holy means. It doesn't mean particularly religious, although it has religious components, particularly for Israel. What it means is different. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be distinct. Among all the nations, you're supposed to be a different kind of nation, a distinct nation, a nation that represents God's wisdom and God's light and God's glory, right? So you're distinct. Not only that, you're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. And so what the priests were uh, within the nation of Israel, Israel was to be among all the other nations around them. The priests, their primary role was to be a mediator between God and men, to bring people to God and God to people. They play that middle role. That's what a priest does. And so Israel is to do the exact same thing for the nations. They are to be like priests among the nations who bring God's wisdom, God's truth, God's justice, God's understanding to the nations, and who then bring the nations uh, to God, right? And so that's what Israel's role is supposed to be, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this really is uh, the purpose of the law. The law is given to Israel in 1500 BC to help them be a kingdom of priests and a holy, distinct nation among the nations around them. And so it's God's charter documents for this new nation to help them live a different kind of human life than the the cultures around them. And that's all really, really important because what it does is it takes Israel where God finds her, right? she, she, She is a new nation, not in, you know, the year 2021, but in the year 1500 B.C., And in that culture, in that time and place, God speaks to Israel about how here here are some things you need to understand in your time, your culture, your place that'll help you show my wisdom, my justice, my righteousness to the cultures and the nations around you. And one of the things that means for us is that um, God's word to Israel in the law is not everything God has to say about the topics addressed in the law. It's addressed in terms of their time and place, 
We've got to remember that. And it's not even really God's final word on the topics about uh, those things. Like there's more that could be said and more that will be said over the course of Israel's history. In fact, what the law does in a very real sense is it, it, it gives examples of the kinds of things that this new nation Israel is going to, to have to deal with as a nation. And it says, look, think about this example, or think about this example, or think about this situation, or in this case, do this. And it tells them specific things. But like all laws, even like the United States laws, you take those cases, those examples, and sometimes you have to extrapolate out to new situations, new circumstances, as history moves on, as culture changes, as the world changes, you have to adapt. And then you look at the cases and you say, okay, that gives an example of one way to put the, the, the law into practice or the, the wisdom of the law into practice. In our new situation, how does that speak to it? And that's really what the Old Testament law did. It took Israel and said, in their days, in, in 1500 BC, here's some examples of the kinds of things you're going to encounter as a nation, and here's the ways you should think about that. And the whole goal was to help them be unique, distinct, different, wise, right? Like, and that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says to them, I want you to live in such a way, live out this law in such a way that the nations around you will say, has there ever been a nation that is so wise and so understanding as this people? Right? That's the goal. That's the goal. And so what you get in the law are very down-to-earth examples of things they're going to encounter in their culture, in their time, in their place. The law is very down-to-earth. In fact, if you just look at even the way the law is structured. So here in Exodus 19, you get this purpose statement. You're to be a kingdom of priests. Chapter 20 of Exodus, you get really the heart and soul of the law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. That's the idea. So you get these Ten Commandments that are big, broad principles of here's some things that are to set you apart, to make you different. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. You're only going to worship one God. You're not going to have lots of gods. That'll make you different, right? Um, the Sabbath, that's unusual. That was different to actually take a day, set it apart. You're not going to work. You're not you're just going to work yourself to oblivion. You're going to rest. Not only are you going to rest, but your animals are going to rest and your servants are going to rest. Everybody's going to rest. And we're going to make sure we take care of your animals. We take care of your servants. There's even going to be rest necessary for the land when we get later to law. So these things are, you shall not, right? The Ten Commandments, you get that. But then beginning, for example, in chapter 21, you get, case laws. Well, what constitutes um, murder, right? You shall not murder. Well, what constitutes murder in your time, in your place, in your culture? Let's think about some examples. One of the unique examples that's given, Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 and 29, is, well, what if you have a bull or an ox who gores somebody to death? Is that murder? What if this bull actually gets out of its pen and it you know, it kills somebody. Is that murder? Here's what Exodus 21 says. Again, this is a case law. This is a specific example, helping them think through how do you take the, the commandment that says you shall not murder, and how do you apply it to this particular situation that you're going to encounter in your culture, right? Well, Exodus 21, 28 says, 
if an ox or a bull does that, if it gores somebody to death and it hasn't had a history of doing this, it's never done it before, then um, then it's not doesn't doesn't constitute murder, right? Like the owner of the ox is not going to be held accountable for that situation. The ox himself obviously has a problem. So Exodus 21, 28 says, the ox needs to be put to death. Don't eat the meat. Just kill it. We're done with that thing, right? Because it's got a problem. But the owner is not going to be held responsible for murder. However, if the ox has done this before and the owner never took responsibility for it and the owner never put the ox uh, to death, even though it had a history of doing this, then the owner is going to be uh, guilty of murder. He's going to have broken that specific commandment. So we have a case law helping Israel as a nation think through this specific command and what kind of situation it applies to. Now, in our culture, at least in my culture where I live, some of you may live in a culture where the ox issue is still a real issue. My culture uh, is just not a real problem where I live, right? But it still helps us think through, it helps us think through, oh, so even animals that have a violent tendency, um, we need to think about that, and we need to think about the sanctity of human life in relationship to that. And so this case gives us some example, a, a model for how to apply the specific big broad principle, you shall not murder. So, for example, when my son was like five years old, we were at a flag football game with a group of college students. One of the college students had a uh, a dog that they had actually just res they just got from a rescue shelter, and it was a pit bull. Pit bulls sometimes can be uh, aggressive, violent dogs. Um, they had this dog. They had him on a leash, and they'd only had him for a few days. Brought this dog to this game where all these people were. Um, probably not the smartest move in the first place, but brought him. And uh, my son was petting this dog. This dog actually lunged at my son, bit him right across the face. Thankfully, no permanent damage to my son, just missed his eye and, and the dog let go. Oftentimes pit bulls latch on, they don't let go. This dog bit my son and uh, uh, thankfully let go. We had to go to the doctor, get some medicine and all this sort of stuff, keep an eye on it, make sure things didn't get infected. But that's, a, that's an issue. And that's sort of like an example of the same kind of case that's being dealt with in Exodus 21. And even though that's not our covenant, it still gives some wisdom for how we should handle these things. And so the owner of that dog did really the responsible thing. It's like, okay, this dog who I barely know and who's been in a shelter obviously has unpredictable and sometimes violent tendencies. I don't want this dog to ever seriously hurt somebody. So he took the dog to the shelter and had the dog put down. That's what Exodus 21 says. Um, it gives a case that helps us think through how to handle specific situations. And, and so what you get in the Old Testament law is you get very down-to-earth case-specific examples, at least a lot of them, that pertain to the kinds of situations that Israel, as a nation, is going to need to think through and address in 1500 BC. And so what you get in the Old Testament laws, you get, you get some criminal law, uh, primarily criminal law against God and the covenant, the kind of law that uh, really would completely undermine the entire 
um, nation of Israel, the kind of law that would kind of break the whole covenant with God and destroy the whole fabric of their society. So you get some criminal law. You get some civil laws in the Old Testament law, laws about land and property and animals and how do we handle that sort of stuff, right? Like a very case-specific example of that is when you build a house, um, make sure you put a small little wall around your roof so no one falls off and hurts themselves because they had flat roofs and they would frequently spend time there. It's just a very down-to-earth civil law. So do that. Laws about land and property and animals and all that. You get some family law, marriage, divorce, these sorts of things. You get some family laws. You get religious or ritual laws because they are God's holy people, and there's going to need to be some uh, guidance in religious and ritual law. In fact, all the neighboring nations in the ancient Near East had ritual law because they all, there was no, I mean, their national identity was bound up with their national religions. And so those all went together. So there was all some instructions about um, religions and rituals for that. So you're going to get some of that here, and yet it's going to be distinct and different because they're a different kind of people. So you get some religious law. You even get in the Old Testament law what might be called compassionate laws, uh, gleaning laws for the poor among you. Don't don't farm all the way to the edges of your land. Leave some of that for the poor among you. Uh, so, you know, compassionate laws or uh, for even some laws for like, okay, in the case of uh, war, here's how you should treat your prisoners of war. And the stuff that we get in the Old Testament law with regard to a lot of that, far more humane than the nations around them. It's actually taking the kinds of things that they're going to have to deal with in their culture and oftentimes just actually bringing a much more humane approach to it, one that respects the dignity of all peoples, like your servants and prisoners of war and even women. Like, you got to treat these people with dignity and, and all of that. And so you get some compassionate laws. So you get these very down-to-earth examples uh, of national law from their time and place, helping them be different and distinct so that they can be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. That's how the Old Testament law functions. Now, God's smart, and God knew that history would move on, and history would change. But what the law did for Israel, uh, both initially and throughout her history, was provide a model for how they could be a nation that displayed God's wisdom to the nations around them. Unfortunately, Israel got off track. And they frequently didn't keep the law. They, they broke their covenant relationship with God. And one of the major jobs of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, right? One of the major jobs of the Old Testament prophets was to call Israel back to faithfulness to the covenant and to show them how the law applied in their day. Like, how do you live this out in your day? Because history had changed, and you need to think this through. And so what would it mean to actually live out the law in your time and place? When Jesus offers his take in fulfilling the law in the Sermon on the Mount, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So when he offers his take on fulfilling the law in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us how the wisdom of the law can and should go beyond just what the law said and get to the heart of the matter. You've heard that it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's angry with his brother is guilty of breaking out. Like, like 
anger leads to harming people. And so, right, so Jesus is showing how we can fulfill the law by actually getting to the heart of the matter. In fact, when the Apostle Paul discusses walking by the Spirit um, in Galatians chapter 5, he shows that, that what the Spirit produces, the law approves, right? Like, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And then he says, against such things there is no law. The law is never going to condemn a person for being joyful, for being loving, for being patient, for being kind, for being gentle, for being faithful. The law will never condemn a person for doing it. In fact, what the law will do, will will stand and applaud. It'll say, yes, that's the kind of person I always dreamed of forming. The point Paul makes in context in Galatians 5 is that while the law dreamed of doing that because the law was wise and good. It was working with bad raw material, fallen human beings, and they needed the Holy Spirit in order to actually help them become the kind of people that the law dreamed of creating. And so as we walk by the Spirit, we become the kind of people who do the kinds of things God really dreamed of Israel doing and God called us to do as well. And so the law served as the really the founding charter for the nation of Israel, and it passed on God's ways in their day. And it was designed to set them apart to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And here's the thing. The apostle Peter takes that very idea and applies it to God's people now in Christ today. Like, yes, the law is not our covenant. We talked about that in our last episode. Our covenant is formed in Christ, and yet we too are supposed to be distinct, different, so that we can be a light to the nations around us. And here's what the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Right? We should hear Exodus 19, 5 and 6 jumping off the page here. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, a people for my treasured possession, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So just like what was true of Israel, um, God had given them mercy, had redeemed them, formed them as his people. Peter now says, writing to Christians living outside of Israel, um, a mixed bag of Jews and Gentiles, he says, what was true of Israel is now true of you, and you're you're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's treasured possession. And for the same purpose, that you could declare the praises in him, that you could display his wisdom, his understanding, his justice, his righteousness to the world around you, to be a light to the nations. And so um, the, the same goal of the law is true for us as Christians and as followers of Jesus today. We are to be a light to the nations. We are to be a city set on a hill. And the Old Testament law 
although it's not our covenant, is God's word for us. And the benefit it has for us is it gives us a model in a specific culture, in a specific nation, a model of what it looks like to live God's people um, in, in a specific time and place. And so what we should do with it is we should take that model and prayerfully reflect on it. And out of that concrete model, we should then begin to say, all right, so here's some of God's values. So here's some of God's priorities. So here's some of the way we should treat employees. Here's some of the ways we should deal with animals who have violent tendencies. Here's some of the ways we should respect the sanctity of life. Here's some of the ways we should respect the sanctity of marriage. And so we look at the concrete model in their time and place and in their culture, and we try then to figure out what it would look like uh, to, as God's people, live a way of life, a way of being human that would reflect God's character in our time and place too. That's really the function of the Old Testament law. And so we shouldn't find ourselves asking, which of these laws do I have to obey and which can I ignore? That's really not the goal. That's not the right way to handle it. The goal is we should ask, what can I learn from these laws about how God wants me to live and how he wants me? me and us as God's people today, how he wants us to live together and really reflect his wisdom into the world. Chris Wright, now one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Chris, Christopher Wright, written a ton of great books on the Old Testament law, has a massive book that's not the easiest to work through on the Old Testament ethics for the people of God today. But in a shorter article on Leviticus, Chris Wright uh, really gives us this encouragement as Christians today. He says, so when we look at any particular law or group of biblical laws, we can ask, what could the purpose be behind this law? Like, what was the purpose in their culture, in their time place? What was the purpose? And as we try to figure out the why of that law, that might help us understand what we could do with it in our time and place. And then he gives a handful of more specific questions that will help us think about the purpose of the law. What kind of situation, he says, was this law intended to promote or to prevent? What kind of situation was this law intended to promote or prevent? What change in society would this law achieve if it were followed? What kind of situation made this law necessary or desirable? What kind of situation made this law necessary? Like, there was a situation in their culture that made this law necessary that, they, that was being addressed, right? What kind of person would benefit from this law by assistance or protection? What kind of person would be restrained or restricted by this law and why? What values are given priority in this law whose needs and rights are upheld? What principle or principles does this law embody and give us a model of? Now, as we, we ask those kinds of questions of the Old Testament law, man, there's going to be some that we just struggle to find out because we don't know their culture fully. We don't understand exactly what situation it's addressing. But there's going to be a lot that as we read through, we're like, oh, I see how that works. And so like the ox goring or the bull goring and killing somebody, and the dog in my son's case, it's like, I see what's going on here. And that gives us some wisdom uh, in how we might uh, embody that, that principle of the law, the why of that law in our time and place. And so the purpose of the law, to summarize, the purpose of the law was 
to help Israel be a, a unique, distinct nation, a holy nation. And the benefit for us is we're supposed to be a holy nation too. And so we can learn some of God's ways, some of God's heart, some of God's character, admittedly in a different culture, but we can learn from that. And that might help us figure out how we can embody God's ways and God's character in our culture today. All right. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I pray it was helpful to you as just a way to read the law more profitably, more intentionally, that it could be useful to your following of Jesus. Hey, I want to say a special thanks to those of you who support this ministry, the Bible and Life, the listener's commentary, this online ministry is largely funded and made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton to those of you who make this ministry possible. And if you've been listening for a while and benefited from this ministry, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? Currently, we're about 65% of minimum monthly need. Man, there's a lot I would like to do in order to do that. Um, I need some help, which might mean hiring some part-time assistants and a variety of things. It would mean ha- you know, paying for some extra platforms or some resources. There's just a lot I would love to do with this. And it's just, it all takes funds. It all takes money for being honest. And so if you've been blessed by this in any way, benefited from it in any way, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters so that this ministry can continue to grow and can continue to expand? May God bless each and every one of you. I hope you have a wonderful week in Christ. I look forward to talking to you again next week.